0: Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Philippians this morning, and so glad we're um, in the providence of God. He directed us to this book for this time, and um, there are just some profound implications for, for all of us um, that I hope will just uh, leap out at you from this text this morning and as we continue through this uh, study of this great book, but we're going to be looking this morning at... Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And let me just read the first two verses that we covered last Sunday. And by the way, if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon because uh, it really set the the foundation. It poured the the concrete, if you will, for uh, the entire um, uh, series uh, in uh, the book of Philippians. And it's very important that you understand the things we talked about last Sunday. But let's begin reading again in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now our text for today. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have, I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for the wonderful things that you've shown me in your word this week. And thank you for this um, honor and this privilege of, of sharing them this morning with these dear saints, and I pray that your spirit would illuminate all of our minds to understand exactly what Paul was saying here and, 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 and ultimately how it relates and applies to our lives today so that we could live differently, that we could be the people that you want us to be, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout the course of our lifetimes, we develop special bonds with certain people and certain groups of people, like our family members or our neighbors, our teachers, our schoolmates, our, uh, our co workers. But perhaps the strongest bonds in all of life are those forged between members of the military who are bound together by the commonality of their service. And uh, if, you're, if you have served in the military or you are in the military, you get this. Uh, for those of us that have not been in the military, served in the military, we have seen this, we've read this, we've watched this, and it's a well-attested fact that soldiers share a unique camaraderie. They're part of a close fraternity, a band of brothers, if you will, an, an esprit de corps that is unmatched by few, if any, other groups. War movies, if you like war movies, they, they often revolve around the special bonds between the men of a particular unit or platoon or those who fought in a specific campaign. We all know that there is a, a special, unique bond between those soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. There was something there that fused their souls together on that day. This should come as no surprise, since soldiers must totally trust and rely on each other. Their survival depends on it. Uh, some who face great adversity together on the front lines or in the trenches, they confess that the connection that they feel with, with their fellow soldiers is even stronger than their own blood relatives. Now, this might not be the case for for those stationed at a base in the safety and the comfort of the United States. But it typically is the case for those who experience the discomfort and the dangers of combat. And the closest and, and lifelong bonds are formed between soldiers under fire. When the bullets are, are whizzing by their heads and the bombs are going off all around them. And, and they display heroic courage of, of selfless sacrifice towards one another. Rather than retreating and abandoning their comrades in the, in the heat of battle, they stay and they, they fight together and they're even willing to give up their own life to save one of their brothers-in-arms. We've all seen that classic scene where the, the hand grenade gets thrown in the foxhole and one of the honorable soldiers will, will fall on that, that grenade and, and take that and, and die to save the rest of the troops. Well, the Apostle Paul viewed those who served alongside him in the work of the gospel as his brothers-in-arms, his comrades or fellow soldiers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, he said this to his young protege, his uh, disciple in the faith, Timothy, he said, quote, "...suffer hardship with me as a good," what? "...soldier of Christ Jesus." In Philemon chapter 1, verse 2, he says, he addressed the, 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 the host home, the people who were hosting the church. He says, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. We know here in the letter of, uh, to the church in Philippi, Paul referred to Epaphrodites as a fellow soldier who's willing to risk his own life to come to Paul's aid. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. Philippians chapter two, verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard, because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly So that when you see him again, you may rejoice and may be less concerned, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And so here Paul was commending Epaphroditus' to selfless sacrifice and instructed the church in Philippi to give him a hero's welcome when he returned to Philippi and and award him with some badge of honor, maybe like a purple heart for ministry, for wounds suffered in the battle for the gospel. We mentioned last week that the Philippian church had deployed Epaphroditus to Rome, and his mission was to transport a financial gift to Paul, who was imprisoned at the time and to minister to whatever needs he might have. Now, based on our uh, title for our series here, Together for the Gospel, Joyfully Partnering in the Cause of Christ, we're getting the idea here that the, the entire church would have traveled to Rome if they could. They would have loaded up in a bus and all went to Rome if they could, and so that wasn't feasible, and so they sent Epaphroditus to serve as their hands and their boots on the ground. But even at home, they too were engaged in the battle. Everyone in this church had joined forces with Paul and was selflessly and sacrificially committed to the war effort, much like the American people after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. I'm always fascinated to read uh, the account of what happened to America after Pearl Harbor. That infamous day united our country and mobilized people to work tirelessly and make tremendous personal sacrifices to support the war effort will turn over just a second to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to this description that Paul gave to the Corinthians of the Philippian church. They were one of the churches of Macedonia. Talk about personal sacrifices to support the war effort. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the, in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, these guys were dirt poor, and they were being persecuted, and yet they were just overflowing with joy, and not just joy, but they wanted to give of their limited resources to help the cause. Verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we'd expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so here the Philippians were receiving Paul's highest commendation. And so it's obvious that, that Paul had a very special place in his heart for these selfless sacrificial saints in Philippi and their desire to, to minister to him in the midst of his difficulties and uh, that he was facing in prison and, and share his struggle in the defense and advancement of the gospel, just, yeah, they, that endeared them to Paul. And that's why his expression of affection for the Philippians in, in this letter is stronger than in any other letter that he wrote to any other church. There's no question that, that he had developed a unique bond with these beloved believers. In chapter 4, verse 1, he simply says, Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Doesn't get any better than that. And so what we're seeing here in this letter is that there's, there's really nothing that causes a greater bond to grow between people than when they struggle and they sacrifice and they suffer together in the trenches for the cause of Christ. And not only does it produce this great bond, it produces great joy. And Paul was overjoyed by their participation or partnership in the work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it was this mutual commitment to this this great mission that forged this, this strong bond between them. And, and so Paul loved these believers dearly, and they also loved him dearly. And I think that's what this passage that we're going to look at this morning is really all about. It just highlights this, this special relationship that Paul shared with the believers in Philippi. And and as I was just meditating on this passage and mulling it over in my mind and praying through what uh, I wanted to say this morning, it it just appears to me that these verses just paint a beautiful, powerful picture of the relationship or the bond shared between a pastor and his people. A pastor should love his people dearly, and his people should dearly love their pastor and And we need to understand that there's something going on here beyond just a, a, a human friendship this this relationship that that is enjoyed that Paul and the Philippians enjoy that, that 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 I as a pastor and you as a people we enjoy is, is it 's more than just a friendship it's a it's a fellowship of the gospel and again, appreciate Dr. Kent Hughes so much and and his thoughts on this. Uh, Epistle, he said this quote, human friendship is a wonderful thing, but fellowship goes beyond friendship. Fellowship occurs among friends committed to a common cause or goal and flourishes through their common pursuit of it. And so the fellowship or the partnership that Paul shared together with the Philippians brought him great joy, and 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 we know Paul. You read this letter, and and it just it just it just exudes joy. And it's sometimes it's it's easy to forget that the guy was in prison when he wrote this, and so he was experiencing some of the most difficult and painful times in in his life and ministry. He was in prison. He was being maligned but he was determined to not let these negative circumstances or the unjust hateful attacks to diminish his joy. In fact, we're going to see here in the next few weeks that right in this first chapter that he was he was thrilled that that the conflict and opposition that he was experiencing was actually serving not to hinder the gospel but to further the gospel. And not only to further the gospel, but to fortify the, the fellowship of the gospel that he enjoyed with them. Again, back to Pearl, Pearl Harbor, when, when the Japanese decided to attack our country for the purpose of destroying our country, they didn't realize they were going to wake up a sleeping giant. And, and, and they actually unwittingly unified and strengthened our country. And so it is with Christ's church. When people attack it and try to destroy it, it only becomes stronger. It becomes more united. And so here in these verses, verses three through eight, Paul shares, I think, three reasons, three reasons why he was so elated by the Philippians and, and endeared to the Philippians. I mean, these are, these are some things that, that made Paul smile. Every time he, he thought... About these, uh, these, these, these believers. Every time God brought these precious saints to mind, it, it just put a smile on his face. Why? Well, he's going to tell us why. The, these are also, I think, the things that, that created this special bond that he shared with this church and made him feel so close, made, it made him feel so close to them. And so, what are these three things? Well, we'll just call them number one, association, number two, anticipation, and number three, affection. He was, first of all, grateful for their participation in the gospel. Secondly, he was confident about their salvation. And thirdly, he was endeared to them by their devotion. And so let's look at these, these reasons why Paul was so grateful, so joyful um, when he thought of the Philippians. Number one their association. He was grateful for their participation. Notice verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Again, Paul was under house arrest here, chained to a, a guard 24-7, which gave him plenty of time for reflection and prayer and, and, and for writing letters like this. And uh, But I think what we need to understand, he was not just sitting there pouting about his circumstances, but just like when he had been arrested and imprisoned On his initial visit to Philippi, remember last week we read Acts chapter 16 and he got thrown in jail. And what what, what were they doing at midnight? They were praying and singing. And the earthquake happened and the doors flew open and they were all released and the Philippian jailer got saved. and, and, And so, again, that's Paul's attitude. And so, rather than having a pity party, he was maximizing this time for the sake of the gospel. And he wasn't just thinking of himself, which is typically what we would do if we were sitting in prison. We'd just be thinking of ourselves. He was focused on others. He was not self-focused. He was others-oriented. We know that because each verse in these six verses contains the word you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you. You all are partakers of grace with me, verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. By the way, uh, he doesn't just say you, he says you all. The majority of the times he mentions you, he says you all, which in the Greek means all 'all. (laughs) y'all. So he was just talking about, right, the entire church, that Paul was grateful, not just for a few of the people in the church that he had a good relationship with, um, not just the normal people in the church. The people that didn't have any problems, right? No, he's like, hey, guess what? I I I love all of you. Uh, Even the ones with issues. Even Yodi and Sintiki, we're going to learn about in chapter 4. These two ladies that were having a spat and everybody knew about it. And he calls them out in this letter. But you know what? They were included in all y'all. That he was so grateful. I thank my God and all my remembrance of, of you, even you knuckleheads, you two knuckleheads over there. I'm thankful to God for you. And I said last week that this letter is essentially a thank you letter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Um, Paul was just expressing his gratitude for their financial gifts, for sending Epaphroditus to serve them in prison. Uh, and, and notice it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance to you. He, the, the, the tense here in, with that, that uh, thank is, is continuous. He was continuously giving thanks to God for what God had done in them, what God was doing through them. And, and we know that, that all of Paul's letters, except for Galatians, Second Corinthians, and Titus, they all start with a prayer of thanksgiving. All that to say, Paul was a very thankful guy. In fact, one commentator said this, quote, there are more frequent references to thanksgiving per page in Paul's letters than can be found in any other author, pagan or Christian. So you can scour the writing of the ages and nowhere will you find a more grateful author, writer than the Apostle Paul. No one was more grateful than Paul. He And he knew, this was just the natural response to the many evidences of grace that that he saw in his own life and in the lives of those to whom he ministered. This was a common theme in Paul's letters. He mentions this in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 4, that we are to be giving of thanks. Uh, Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he said a similar thing here. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then, of course, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything give what? Thanks. So Paul modeled what that looked like, to be a grateful guy. And he exhorted those that he was shepherding to Be grateful as well. And so the point is that when Paul thought back on his time in Philippi, there was no regrets. There's no hard feelings. There was no unresolved conflicts. There there was nothing but pure joy that filled his memories and and, and filled his prayers. Notice he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, all y'all. I'm praying for y'all. These guys, these Philippians, were constantly in Paul's prayers. They were an unfailing source of joy and satisfaction. It was just a sheer delight for Paul to pray for him, for them. This was not a a drudgery. Um, By the way, this is the first mention of the word joy uh, in this letter. Verse 4. It rings another 15 more times, building to a crescendo in chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. Again, Paul himself here was in prison, awaiting possible execution. But either way, he was in Christ, and so he rejoiced. And he also rejoiced every time he prayed for the Philippians. I mean, this must have been a huge encouragement when this letter was read, possibly by Epaphroditus to the congregation, that that they found out that Paul wasn't just thinking about him. He was praying for him. I mean, what a a huge encouragement. I mean, I appreciate when people say, I've been thinking about you lately. Well, that's encouraging. But it's even more encouraging when they say, you know, I've been praying for you lately. Isn't that encouraging when someone tells you that? Or even more encouraging, if someone calls you up like they did this past week and said, Pastor, I want to pray for you right now. And they just prayed for me over the phone, and it was beautiful. It was powerful. I was so grateful. It was so encouraging. Where was the joy coming from? Where was this gratitude? What was the source of this gratitude? Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of... Why am I so grateful? Why am I so joyful in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now? And as I noted last week, this word gospel here appears more times per line in this letter to the Philippians than in any book in the New Testament. You say, well, how many times is it mentioned? Well, it's only mentioned six times in the first chapter alone. That should tell you something, right? Verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, verse 27. So again, th- that's why I'm convinced that this is all about, this, is, this letter is not all about joy. It's all about the gospel. It's about the fellowship of the gospel that, that brings joy, creates joy. So Paul was thankful for how the Philippians participated in the work of the gospel through their faithful prayers. Through their financial gifts, we saw that in, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, he mentioned that they had sent him multiple financial gifts over, over the years. This word participation here in verse 5 is the Greek word koinonia, and uh, I'm sure most of you don't know any Greek at all, but even so, that's one Greek word that somehow has risen to the surface and we kind of all, all know it as Christians. Uh, koinonia, which is the word for what? fellowship. It's where we get our word fellowship, which means a sharing in common. It describes the the close brotherly relationship that we share with our fellow believers. Now, when we talk about fellowship in the church today, what is it typically associated with? Food, hanging out together, potluck suppers, coffee, donuts, things like that. Well, listen, when Paul Paul wasn't thinking back to his time in Philippi and thanking God for all the Pollock suppers and all the meetings at Starbucks that he he enjoyed with with, with those when he was in Philippi and again there's nothing wrong with any of these things and they do create a context for us to engage with one another get to know one another and share stories about how we're we're, we're advancing the gospel in our home at work and, and and how the gospel's progressing in different places through our witness by the grace of God but 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 what was Paul thinking he was thinking of and thanking God for their common commitment to sharing the good news of salvation with those who had yet to hear I was thinking about this this week, is, 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 is what do we, I mean, just kind of, maybe just listen to yourself and listen to some of the conversations that are going on around you uh, in the life of our church, and what are we most excited about? I mean, I overhear conversations all the time in the life of our church, and, and people are really passionate, they're very excited about lots of stuff, and sadly, it's rare for me to come across someone who's fired up about an opportunity they just had to share the gospel with a coworker or a classmate. Or their neighbor. I mean, they're talking about other things that are so less important. Why aren't we passionate about what matters most? And that's the gospel, the good news of salvation, penetrating or, I guess, a a, a growing appreciation of it in our own lives. And, And then how we're seeking to advance the gospel in our community. I think something else that we can learn from this is, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, listen, you don't have to be together to enjoy and experience close fellowship with other Christians. Do you realize it's possible to be close to people physically and be miles away from them spiritually? Some of you are living that right now. You're you're here, you're close to us physically, but you are miles away spiritually. It's also possible to be close to people spiritually and be miles away from them physically. And I think the latter was the case for Paul, for Paul and the Philippians here. Even though they were miles apart, they, they enjoyed sincere, sweet fellowship. Why? Because they had a common bond, which was not eating donuts and drinking coffee, but advancing the gospel. And, and guess what? That, that translates over oceans. A lot of this other stuff doesn't. You think about the missionaries that we support, our foreign missionaries. We often will get thank you notes from them for our prayers and our gifts or for donating time and labor and skills, whether it's construction skills or medical skills or accounting skills, administrative skills, coming and working alongside them in the field on a short-term missions trip. We get thank you letters because we were participating, we were sharing, we were fellowshipping in the cause of the gospel. And, and, and those of us who have gone on a, on a short term mission trip, you, you, you will never forget that euphoric sense of being this band of brothers and sisters in Christ that you were serving together overseas in that difficult place and you wish it could be that way all the time. And you come back here to church and you're like, something's missing, what's wrong with us? Well, I would say we should experience that same sense of euphoria, whether we're on a missions trip in Honduras or India or Albania, or we're serving the Lord side by side and advancing the gospel in the children's ministry at our church, advancing the gospel in the lives of our children, or advancing lives in the, advancing the gospel in the lives of our students, those of you that are serving in student ministry. Or, the woman's ministry, when you ladies get together and you're, you're advancing the gospel in your own lives and the lives of other ladies that you're trying to invite to expose to the gospel, when, you're, when, when we're here on Monday nights with the contact sports ministry and trying to build relations with people in the community, and I mean, there should be this euphoria, this excitement that we're all working together to share the gospel with people in our church and people outside our church. I would also say this, I guarantee you that the believers in Philippi weren't just sitting within the safety of the four walls of Lydia's house, praying for Paul and writing and sending him checks. They took an active role in spreading the gospel right there in their own backyard in Philippi, and they were excited about their newfound faith in Christ, and Paul wanted them to be lights uh, in a crooked and perverse generation. And so they, Paul knew that they were witnessing to their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers, why they wanted them to, to, to know the joy of Christ, of knowing Christ and to share in the fellowship with God and with fellow Christians like they did. Notice, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, this should bring us back to Acts 16. We read it last week. We could have read it right now. What, what is this, the first day until now? But if you missed it, go back and read Acts chapter 16, which uh, share, Luke shares a, a very detailed account of Paul's initial visit there uh, when, when the, I guess, um, the gospel landed, made a beachhead in Europe, and the beachhead was Philippi, and what happened there. And you remember, they were very generous very hospitable for the cause of the gospel, um, and, and this just continued to characterize the church 10 years later. He's writing now 10 years later. And so I think when Paul thought about the first converts uh, and, and the many evidences of grace that, this, that, that were displayed in their lives, it just brought a smile to his face. It just filled his heart with gratitude to God. When he, when he remembered Lydia, that, that wealthy, hardworking, well-organized businesswoman who who got saved by the river. And and who immediately brought Paul and Silas into their into, into her home and, and then provided her home as the meeting place for the church. You remembered the amazing spiritual transformation that took place in the demon-possessed slave girl. You remembered how the hardened jailer who, who had mercilessly thrown him into the deepest part of the dungeon shackled him, and obviously uh, must have seen how beaten and bloody Paul was, could care less. But then he got saved, radically saved, and he began washing Paul's wounds. These are just a few of the evidences of grace that Paul observed in, in the lives of the Philippians that made him so thankful. And so, all that to say, I think that those of us charged with the care of souls, need to keep in mind the evidences of grace in their lives, which will help us be grateful for them rather than being frustrated by them. Sometimes we focus too much on people's problems and their issues and what they're not doing right instead of saying, you know what, there's a lot of good that God's doing in that person's life. They are growing, they are maturing. Let's focus on the evidences of grace and not the areas that they're lacking in their faith. And we can be praying that God would use us to, to, to do that in people's lives. And so, first of all, Paul was endeared to these people. He was overjoyed for these people because of their association, their participation in the gospel. Secondly, he was endeared to them and elated about them because of his anticipation. He was confident about their salvation. Look at verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, just so you know, I was really tempted to just stop and pull the emergency brake and just camp out on verse 6. Why? Because here we have one of the most important verses in all the Bible from which we derive the doctrine of eternal security or the assurance of salvation, or the perseverance of the saints, or what I prefer to say, the preservation of the saints. What is Paul saying here? He says, for I am confident of this very thing. His joy in their present fellowship was matched by his confidence in their ongoing sanctification and their future glorification." He was confident in their ongoing sanctification and future glorification. He was he was excited about what God had done in their lives to save them, to, to justify them, to redeem them, to reconcile to God, to reconcile them to God. But he was also very confident in their sanctification and their ultimate glorification. He says, I am confident of this very thing. What thing? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What is this good work? In you that God began. Well, Paul wasn't talking about their work for the cause of the gospel. He was talking about the gospel's work in them. Not how they were working for the gospel, but how the gospel was working in them. And he's talking about their salvation. And I think this is a great reminder to us. He says, He began a good work in you. Listen, we're not saved by doing good works. Salvation is the good work that God does in our lives. Our good works are simply the evidence that we've been truly saved by God. Now, Paul had witnessed with his own eyes the miraculous transformation that had taken place in these people's lives, these people's lives and he knew it was not the result of anything he had done. But it was all God's work in their lives. I mean, he, Paul knew he could have preached the gospel to them until he was blue in the face. But unless God had opened up their heart, they would have never been saved. And we know that's what we read last week, right? In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, as Paul was sharing the gospel beside that river and Lydia was listening, it says, God opened up her heart. Guess what? That's my testimony. That's your testimony. That's all of our testimonies, that God is the one who opened up our heart. God is the one who initiates and accomplishes salvation by his sovereign grace. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, notice what Paul says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Listen, even your faith was granted to you by God. It was a gift granted to you by God. For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a what? Gift from God. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then of course in the sister prison epistle, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, God's work, this good work that Paul was so confident about in the lives of the Philippians and in our lives, began in eternity past, when God graciously chose us to be saved, and then at just the right moment, he opened up our heart to hear, to understand, and to embrace the gospel, and to cry out in faith like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul's point is very simple. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And guess what? God always finishes what he starts. Amen? He always finishes what he starts. And this is what Paul's saying. For I am confident this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's referring to The day when Christ returns to get his bride, the church, at the rapture. You can read about this more in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul talked about this day of Christ, Jesus, in verse 10. That you would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about um, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to rejoice uh, in chapter three, verses twenty and twenty-one, he talks about how, our when Christ returns, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he's even to subject all things to himself. So he's talking here uh, about the moment when we see Christ, when he comes or he calls us home, when we will be instantly made perfect. First Thessalonians, or excuse me, uh, First John chapter three, verse two. When we see him, we will be what? Like him. So this is referred to as our glorification. Our glorification. We have our justification when we got saved initially, uh, our regeneration, if you will. God bringing us back, dead people, those who were dead and trespassing, back to life. And then now we have our glorification. And we got this, in the meantime, thing called what? We just sang about it. Sanctification. What's going on in the sanctification process? Well, God is putting the finishing touches on all of our lives. He's sanctifying us. He's setting us apart from sin. We're becoming, uh, we're we're sinning less and less and, and, and honoring him more and more. We're becoming more and more holy. We're growing to be more like Christ. And that is ultimately the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation was not just to rescue us from hell and let us spend eternity in heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We love this verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what is this purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's goal for our salvation, is to make us like Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's the work of salvation. Paul said this to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. The point is, You becoming a Christian, you staying a Christian, you going to heaven someday is not about your faithfulness, it's about God's faithfulness. And this gives us great hope and great encouragement in the midst of life's difficulties and uncertainties and failures and defeats. We remember that, hey, you know what? God began a good work in me and the Bible says he always finishes what he starts and and so he must be up to something good and he's in the process of perfecting me. He's making me more like Jesus until that glorious day when I will be completely like Christ. And don't think for a minute that there's anything that you can do or not do that can thwart God's saving work in your life. Your salvation is guaranteed no matter what. Now, lest any of you think that's a sin whenever I want, you know, get out of jail free card kind of thing, may it never be, shall we go on sinning so the grace may abound, right? Paul says, no. Listen, just because you think you're saved or you say you're saved shouldn't necessarily give you the confidence that you are saved. Paul's confidence that the Philippians were truly saved was based on the evidence of the grace he observed in their lives. It was obvious to him that God was at work in them because their commitment to the cause of of Christ and and their passion for the progress of the gospel. That's how he knew. So if you're sitting here saying, I'm a Christian, but you could care less about the progress of the gospel, that may be an indication that you don't truly know Christ. You need to look for the evidences of grace. God's working in your life, the fruit. The Bible says we'll know them by their fruit. Listen, for those of us who have been Christians for a while, we know, we know, we're confident that ultimately it is God who has kept us. Amen? We're not still walking with the Lord after all these years because of our grip on Him, but because of His grip on us. And those of you who are Or young in the faith, maybe you just recently became a Christian. Listen, you can can draw great assurance and confidence from this verse for your future life in Christ. Listen, God's got this. It's not like, oh no, I gotta be careful, I might lose my salvation. No, you can't lose yourself. If you're truly saved, you can't lose. Listen, if you did nothing to, 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 to earn your salvation, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. And might I just note this as we wrap up what we're saying about this particular verse that, that I think that Paul was not just referring to God's work in the Philippians individually but corporately. In other words, he was saying, I am confident this very thing, that he will begin a good work in you there in the church in Philippi. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I think the same thing applies to our church and any other church when God starts a church and blesses a church he guarantees the future of that church until the day of Christ which should bolster our faith our hope our confidence and so Paul was thrilled by this anticipation and then just finally and and, and quickly notice the affection the affection that that Paul had, how he was endeared to these people by their devotion to him and to the cause of of the gospel. Verse 7, he says, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Or, some translate that statement, you have me in your heart. You're like, well, which is it? Did Paul have them in his heart or did they have Paul in their heart? Well, not to be nebulous here, but the Greek allows for either translation here. One commentator said it this way in, in Greek. This sentence is grammatically ambiguous. We can't tell whether Paul meant because I have you in my heart or because you have me in your heart. Perhaps Paul meant for this ambiguity to indicate the truth of both. In other words, this, this endearment was Reciprocal. It was like two sides of the same coin. Listen, you're in my heart, and, and I'm in your heart. We, you love me, I love you. That, that's the idea here. I mean, just one example of, of this, that they had lovingly and graciously and sacrificially sent Epaphroditus to Rome because they were concerned about Paul, and then Paul sacrificially and graciously sent Epaphroditus back to to Philippi because he was concerned about them. Hey, we're going to send you a because we're concerned about you. He goes, yeah, but I know he got sick and I know you're concerned about him. I'm going to send him back to you so you're not concerned. They, they were trying to outserve one another, out-love one another, if you will. Notice he says here, I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Literally, in my chains, that's what it says in the original language, Paul was anticipating having to stand trial before Nero and defend the gospel that he was preaching throughout the Roman Empire, and he says, hey, you guys are all partakers of this grace with me, both Paul and the believers in Philippi had been initially saved by God's grace, but I think what he's referring to here is that they were also experiencing God's ongoing sustaining grace, which enabled them to carry on the work of the gospel in the face of severe opposition. And I think that Paul was mainly referring to how the members of the Philippian church here were, were sharing in his labors and in his suffering, and when they found out that, that Paul was arrested and imprisoned, rather than disassociating themselves with him and saying, we don't know that guy, they became even more committed to him, and they contributed even more to his needs by their financial gifts and by sending Epaphroditus, and so even though it was, even though they were millions of miles away, or at least it felt like they were a million miles away, it was like they were sitting right there, chained alongside him in prison, standing next to him in court, making a defense for the gospel because they knew the outcome of this case would ultimately affect them and the progress of the gospel. And so they remembered him, as it says in Hebrews thirteen three, as though they were in prison with him. And then notice this last verse, verse 8. For God is my witness. Paul called on God himself to vouch for how deep his feelings were for the Philippians. In other words, the love that he had for them was so unbelievable, so incredible, that he felt like he needed to, to call God as his witness because no one would believe it. God was the only one who knew what was truly in his heart, and, and so he, he's essentially saying, Listen, guys, I'm not just saying this. I mean it. I, I love you guys. I can't wait to see you again. And again, this was not just, just, just mere human affection. The love that, that Paul had for them was supernaturally produced by the Holy Spirit in his heart through his union with Christ. Notice what he says here, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It wasn't his affection, it was the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection is a funny word in the Greek, it's splatna. It just kind of sounds gross, doesn't it? And it means bowels or intestines. In the ancient world, this was a term used to describe the seat of the emotions, the, the, a person's inner feelings, their, their innards, and, and in fact, this word is only used one other time in a physical sense to describe Judas' suicide when he fell out of the tree that he was, had hung himself from, and it says that his stomach burst open and his guts poured out. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. That was the smachna. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that, that, that he loved the members of the church in Philippi with all of his heart. But it wasn't just all his heart, it was the affection of Christ. In other words, it was the same, he had the same unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love that Christ exhibited when he was here on earth, which set the pattern for how he wanted all of his followers to love each other. So we need to remember that this is not something we can work up in our own hearts in our own lives, towards one another. It's like, I'm going to really try to love you today even more than I did yesterday. You can't do that. This is something that God enables us to do, to love another in this Christ-like way by channeling the love of Christ through us to others. Romans chapter five, verse five, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You remember Paul said this I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, through me. And so Paul shares these three reasons association, anticipation, affection. These were the things that produced in Paul's heart great joy. It's what Placed a smile on Paul's face. Guess what? It should have these things. Should have the same effect on our lives as well. What a joy! What a joy! It should be for all of us—pastors, elders, people—to partner together in the work of the gospel. This should put a smile on our face. Seriously, we get to be a part of this. We get to do this together. How cool is this? And as we struggle and sacrifice and suffer together, a special bond will continue to develop between us, especially during those times in the life of our church when when we are coming under fire by the enemy. That's when the bonds are the strongest. And that's when our love for Christ and each other is intensified and, and we're more united than ever and even more committed to praising the gospel together when we gather together and then to proclaim the gospel to others when we leave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, we do uh, just love your word because of the way it it just impacts our life, changes our life. And uh, Lord, just thank you just for the way the implications of this text just are screaming out this morning to to make application to our personal lives and to our corporate life as a church. Lord, I pray that we we would get this by your grace, and Lord, that you would produce in us this kind of joy, this kind of affection, this kind of love, um, that we would love one another with the affection of Christ, and Lord, people would see us loving each other in this way, and they will know that we're Christians by our love, and it will open up wonderful opportunities to share Christ with them, and and we could share with them, tell them how they can be a part of this great uh, fellowship that we enjoy as Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.